Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Today we've, uh, we're post-ASCO. I didn't go. I was at a, uh, a Weezer concert sandwiched around a country music festival. And uh, so I'm a little bit behind on ASCO. So we're going to do the ASCO appetizers today. These are the, kind of some of the smaller things that maybe flew under the radar if you're really following closely. Uh, and next week when I had more time to review everything that's been published in tandem with, the, with their presentation, we'll do some of the bigger presentations uh, next week. The entrees will be next week, appetizers this week. So first I want to talk about uh, a study that I, I, I tweeted out um, when the abstracts were released. One of the first things I do when ASCO abstracts are released is I search for pharmacist or pharmacy. And the one uh, that really caught my eye, the only one, was uh, looking at um, pharmacist uh, interventions um, in, uh, in talking to patients, taking an, a targeted oral anti-cancer therapy or an oral oncolytic. This comes from the VA system. First authors here are from the Salt Lake City, Utah uh, Veterans Affair, and they're looking at a, a large database um, and primarily looking at hematologic malignancies. Um, and what they're looking at is those patients who met with an oncology pharmacist or those that didn't, and does that make a difference in adherence? How do you measure adherence? Um, tough to do. It's somewhat subjective. Did you take your medication? Did you not? That's subjective. So what can be an objective surrogate marker for adherence? It's how often, um, as a percentage, do you have medication in your hands? As measured by usually, um, yeah, you know, for example, you get a 30-day supply every 30 days for 90 days. That's 100% coverage of your disease. For example, if you get a 30-day supply every 45 days, that'd be like a 67% coverage, for example. And reasons that patients could not be adherent could be, I'm afraid of side effects. It could be, um, I instead of taking four of these tablets to get my full dose, I'm going to take three so it stretches out longer. Uh, it could be that... Um, uh, my big concern is they don't, uh, uh, patients are not uh, educated enough about the side effects and when to uh, notify somebody about the side effects and when self-management is appropriate or inappropriate self-management and they end up with too serious of toxicity and have to stop for therapy. So this is looking at that. We have 1,900 patients uh, going back through their, uh, their records. The majority are white, 77% white. Uh, it's mostly an older demographic as you, uh, I'm assuming here from looking at this. Um, the most common drug here um, in almost nine, uh, 90% uh, received abrutinib, uh, which I've done a fair amount of abrutinib counseling. And there's really a lot to go over when you talk about abrutinib with somebody um, for this. Uh, so if you look at the subset of patients, which is um, who had um, the time to their first fill was less than four, um, uh, four weeks, 28 days, patients who met with an, uh, an oncology pharmacist, higher rates of adherence as measured by how much drug they have compared to those that didn't. For the four-week time point, the eight-week time point, and the 12-week time point. Uh, so those numbers are 97% versus 82% at four weeks. It's a delta of 15% at eight weeks. It's 96 versus 75%. That's a delta of 21. At 12 weeks, it's 92% versus 72%, about the same delta at 28%. So three months later in these folks, um, you know, if they met with an oncology pharmacist, um, you know, they're much more likely to still be uh, taking their drug and, and having it on hand and having it filled to be able to take. Uh, I guess it's tough to say that they're actually taking it. If you look at the larger cohort of patients who um, 
who uh, their day supply was 28 to 30 days that they're getting filled. Uh, we also saw higher rates of 8 and 12 week adherence rates, 96% versus 87% and 91% versus 79%, pretty comparable, more like a delta of 13, so delta 12. So if your place is not having uh, mandated, and listen, people should pay for this, payers should pay for this, for oncology pharmacists to meet and educate these patients uh, when they first get their, uh, their oral antineoplastics, uh, if they're not doing that, they're less likely to be getting the drug. So, you know, maybe the drug companies should pay for oncology pharmacists to talk to folks because uh, bias enters the chat. I think we're pretty darn good at talking to patients in, 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 in detail, but in, uh, in plain language terms about how to take the medications most appropriately, what to expect, uh, when, uh, when things are scary, when they need to seek help, and when it's appropriate for them for, to manage that themselves. And, and we do a good job of checking in when we have adequate time and are compensated for our services. Okay, uh, next abstract is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study of topical diclofenac, Voltaren gel, uh, to prevent hand-foot syndrome in patients receiving campesitabine. This is really interesting. This came across on Twitter, and in reading uh, their, their introduction here, there was something that I had forgotten, which is there was way, way back, there was like a retrospective study that they found that people taking uh, celecoxib, a somewhat COX-2 selective NSAID, uh, had lower rates of hand-foot syndrome um, with capesidabine than those that, that were not taking celecoxib. This led to a phase two, phase three study that did show that, actually showed that the rates of um, serious, um, uh, that there were lower rates of hand-foot syndrome in patients who received celecoxib versus don't. There's a randomized study that showed that. Uh, now, celecoxib is a 2C9 substrate, Capesidabine is an inhibitor 2C9, so taking those together, you get more celebrex exposure, a little bit higher risk of toxicity. Um, that, that's maybe scared some folks for that. I'd forgotten that that data even existed, not something that I've ever seen in practice, to be honest with you. Um, mechanistically, nobody appears to know why this happens that I, uh, that I found in, these, uh, in the write-up here or in the celebrex papers. Um, so this, this theory of NSAIDs maybe having some effect led to this. Uh, diclofenac is an NSAID. It's available systemically. It's also available as a gel. In fact, Voltaren gel here in the United States has, uh, in the last couple of years, has become over-the-counter, uh, so it doesn't require prescription to take. Uh, and this is a, a randomized controlled study that's out of India looking at patients doing um, uh, diclofenac gel or placebo. Um, uh, yes, placebo, um, to look at the incidence of grade 2 or higher hand-foot syndrome um, is what they're looking at here. So. Uh, you know, grade one hand foot syndrome you would expect to happen in like 60, 70 percent. Most people are going to have hand foot syndrome. So this is looking at the serious hand foot syndrome. Um, so the rate of uh, grade two or higher hand foot syndrome was 3.8 percent in the diclofenac arm, 15 percent in the placebo arm. Um, so, uh, you know, certainly, you know, lower rates here. The only thing that gives me pause here is any grade hand foot syndrome was lower in the study arm. 6.1% versus 18.1% in the placebo arm. Again, any hand-foot syndrome probably is going to be 60%, not 18%, uh, which makes me wonder, are they giving very low doses of capecitabine? Why are we not? Is this uh, an effect in India? Or are they giving lower doses here? Um, we'll want to see the publication to see more about that, but certainly something that piques my interest. Um, uh, the only... Um, 
you know, again, hesitation to making this potentially standard of care is seeing the full, pu 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 the full publication uh, to see if, if we say this benefit of diclofenac gel is only with low-dose capecitabine, probably be effective with higher doses as well. Another potential pause is diclofenac gel being over-the-counter. Uh, sometimes that is a barrier for insurance payment of something if it's available over-the-counter. Their prescription drug insurance, as prescription drug insurance, will not cover over-the-counter drugs. Sometimes you can get around that by having the OTC actually on a, a prescription. Uh, sometimes that helps, but pesky insurance companies sometimes will not still pay for it. All right, the third study I'm going to talk about today, but not the last study, um, also um, was, I believe this was presented at ASCO, but it was published in JAM Oncology, and this is a retrospective um, population-based cohort study, and I know I say this a lot, when, what do we say about retrospective studies as, as their results? We say, huh, interesting, it's probably the most we should say. Uh, so this is looking at patients with non-small cell lung cancer who've been on um, immunotherapy for two years and have not progressed. So this is, you know, I, I use this analogy today, this is the, the line drive double you know, you've got an incurable disease, but two years later, you're, you're on second base. You didn't even have to slide. You got there easily. Uh, these patients are doing very well, and we're happy. They're doing well. They've had two years of an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Is there benefit to continuing it? Most of these immune checkpoint inhibitor studies, uh, not all of them, but many of them have a planned duration of treatment at two years. So what do you do beyond two years? We don't know. And as the authors state here, we're probably not going to get uh, a study looking at that. So this is a large study with a thousand people they start with initially, and then based on their exclusion criteria, they end up with 113 patients who were playing, who only got two years. Uh, those patients were a little bit more likely to be at, at an academic center versus a community-based cancer center, versus about 600 who got it indefinitely until progression. And they're looking at overall survival here, and there, there's no apparent difference in overall survival between these patients, and they actually do some, uh, they do some, they adjust for some baseline risk factors and don't see a difference after that. Um, so it looks like, and I think they say this very well, um, that this provides reassurance to folks that if you want to stop after two years, we have some data, albeit retrospective and lower quality, some data that it might be safe to do that and not compromise overall survival. Um, it also gives you something uh, gives you a good uh, rationale to re-challenge on immune checkpoint inhibitor, which you would not do if they progress while on treatment uh, as well, which, which may be very well baked into the comparable overall survival results. Apparently, again, this is a, a retrospective study. So um, next week, we've got um, more to talk about with ASCA. We've got some CAR-T studies moving up in the line of therapy, um, some, a lot of stuff that's been published, um, PEMBRO, in kind of a change, trying to catch up to Nevo in, uh, with an indication. Um, but uh, lots to talk about. Got some exciting stuff coming up for vacation period in July, I think. Some guest interviews that I hope you will find a little mini module on, on research that uh, hopefully you'll find interesting for the first part of July. So thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeatNib, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, the podcast, at UncleFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember... Doses matter. Thank you.